Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, it's Justin Briley presenting this week's Profile, the show where you get to meet all sorts of interesting Christians in all walks of life and brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine, a great monthly mag, and you can request a free copy of the latest edition by visiting premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today's profile is a conversation with Sorab Amari, who grew up in Iran, became an atheist in his teens after moving to the USA, and went on to become an adult convert to Catholicism. He's a widely published journalist and social commentator in the USA, and I had the pleasure of hosting the UK launch of his recent book, The Unbroken Thread for Hodder Faith. Today on The Profile, you'll hear our conversation. Let's let's get to know you a little bit first, though, Sorab. Um, I think is this your second book that you've written? It's my it's my second feature or major book. Well, while I was living in in Britain, actually, which we can get into, I published a short um, kind of polemic, just a twenty thousand word polemic about um, art and identity politics. So, well, if you count that, then it's my third book. Great. It's. It, I mean, I think your your the book before this was more about your own faith journey wasn't it and how you came to to become a catholic um tell us a little bit about that journey because um it's 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 not spelt out in great detail in this book but but i'd love to hear a bit before we get into this one sure so that book is titled from fire by water my journey to the catholic faith um i'll try to give a summary version of it but um for people who are interested actually hotter is going to bring out the a uk edition oh, great. Uh, at some point in the future um so i was born and raised in tehran iran to a um a very secular family um uh, muslim nominally but my parents didn't really practice and um uh, they were it, kind of bohemians you might say my mom was an artist my dad was an architect i was surrounded with western books and and movies and ideas at home it just happened to be that home was situated within a larger society that had just gone through the islamic revolution and the new islamic republic had come to power and so i grew up with this um kind of in behind closed doors outside closed doors tension um where at home like i said you know my parents drank alcohol and and used for forbidden you know, watch words like democracy. And then, um, but in public, we had to pretend to be adherents of the, you know, Islamic revolution. Uh, and so at, at age 13, um, the tension, that tension led me to conclude that, you know, religion is just a kind of public hypocrisy um, imposed by the, by the Ayatollahs or what have you. And, and I declared myself an atheist, or at least privately to myself. I didn't broadcast it, um, certainly not at school. Um, and then a year later, um, or not long after that, uh, you know, we immigrated, my mother and I, to the United States, uh, um, thanks to a, an uncle who had gotten us uh, what's called the Family Preference Visa Program, um, a.k.a. chain migration, as President Trump used to call it. Um, and my idea of the West was, you know, the West is super secular, it's individualistic, it's quote-unquote rational, therefore not tainted by the superstition that... that um, prevailed in in my native land and my idea of the west was like this kind of decadent manhattan of the 1980s as you would see in the movies um and then what had actually happened is we you know boarded a plane and um you know the plane took off and as you know you see a flight path uh in a television screen on the on the airplane and we went right over manhattan and we stopped somewhere called 
um, Salt Lake City, Utah. When I got out, I was uh, surrounded by uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons, and America was, in fact, um, at least that pocket of America was very religious. It was very communitarian even and not individualistic. And so I rebelled against that too. I almost instantly sort of shifted my oppositional energies, which had hitherto been directed against the Iranian mullahs and directed them against kind of, you wouldn't say Judeo-Christian morality and tradition as I encountered it in the United States. It took a long time. I mean, 20 years from that, you know, I, and I went through the kind of the typical intellectual maturation that uh, a lot of people in the West go through in that in college, I became, a, you know, a Trotskyist. And then, you know, gradually as I left college, I became more of a, uh, you might say, a, a liberal or a, even a kind of small C conservative gradually. Um, and then, you know, through a long process of, of reading where I actually, instead of uh, 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 kind of dismissing the Bible, uh, I eventually sat down and read it and, and, um, it really spoke to me. It sent it to, to the sense that I had had that I have an interior voice, the conscience, which seemed to tell me that there was an objective moral order, which suggested that there must be some Lord of that order, namely God. Um, and then, you know, in in Genesis, for example, that that interior voice takes on this external voice of of, of God telling Cain, "What have you done? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground." Um, eventually, to make a long story short, I came to be convinced that there is a there is a God, a personal God, and ultimately the personal God as I encountered him in in, in Christianity mm -hmm. and specifically the Catholic faith. And I was received into the church um, actually in in December 2016 in in Britain at the at the Brompton Oratory. Um, and I, I I went in and you know I had gone to a few masses before and as I write in the book these masses really moved me the idea of of a God who submits to humiliation by his own creatures um, you couldn't make that up in a way I mean it, mm. if you were to set out to create a religion you you wouldn't create a God like mm. that mm. Um, and it, they very much moved me and at this particular mass and the Brompton Oratory is known for very kind of elaborate traditional liturgy. I finally decided to become a Catholic, so I, I I knocked on the on the rectory door, and the priest opened, and and I and I said I wish to become a Roman Catholic, and he didn't miss a beat. He just said, "Very well, I shall I shall instruct you." So, <laughs> yes, I, I'm sure there are many priests who, who who wish that the people would knock on their door and and say they want to become a a Christian or a Catholic. Um, the um the book uh, here here it is, the unbroken thread. Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Um, really enjoyed reading it. Thank you for writing it, Sorab. Thank you, John. Uh, and I love the UK cover, don't you? It's, it's. I mean, I'm going to be a bit biased here, but I think it's better than the US cover. I think it's a really well, I, nice I, I, cover. I, 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 off the record, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> share my opinion. But as it is, it's like choosing between my children. <laughs> of course, of course it is. Um, but but um, I, I think this is remarkable. It's had some r rave reviews. Um, you've got Peter Frankopan, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, uh, Giles Fraser, among others, with with uh, endorsements on the back. Um, and and I can see why it's it's uh, it's just a really fascinating book, because what you've done in this book is you've you've asked big questions about our culture and where we are. But you've framed it through the stories of people through history. Um, tell us a bit about what the sort of genesis of this book was and also tell us about your little son max who features kind of bookends the book in in some ways T tell us about that that aspect of it as well 
Sure. So this is a book, uh, as you said, I wrote for my son, Max. He was uh, two years old when I started. He's now four years old. Um, and he was born of of kind of my anxieties about what kind of a man our contemporary um, political, cultural, economic arrangements will chisel out of him. Um, so my Max is named after um, uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe, who is, um, he's actually um, uh, one of the kind of Christian figures uh, whose statue appears kind of, uh, you know, flanks uh, Westminster Abbey. And um, so he's one of the great modern Christian martyrs. He was a Polish Franciscan friar who famously uh, laid down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz. Um, The Nazis had picked this man to be executed and he cried out, my wife, my children. And when St. Maximilian heard this, he offered to take his place in the starvation chamber. Um, so when I heard that story, I was so moved by it that I obviously as Catholics do, I named my son after him. Um, uh, but um, to me, that act of naming him was was a way to try to tether my son to the account of freedom um, that Maximilian Kolbe exemplified with this great act. Um, an account of freedom, you know, really uh, mm-hmm. an icon of Christian freedom that you find your freedom uh, not in self-willing, which you can't really do in a, in a concentration camp, but actually in accepting limits, uh, surrender, sacrifice, duty, even, even unto death. And as I write in the introduction of the book, my, you know, I have that account of freedom, um, which is ultimately rooted in um, kind of our pre-modern heritage, both Christian and, and, uh, and classical or Greco-Roman. And then my nightmare for my Max is that when he's Maximilian Kolbe's age, he's just living a life of kind of purposeless decadence. You know, chances are, given the way our society works, that he'll inherit his parents' um, elite status. So I'm not worried that he'll be, you know, God forbid, like an opioid addict or something, but that, um, you know, he'll come back from college and um, all he cares about is getting ahead career-wise and quote-unquote keeping his options open. And therefore, never really actually exercising his free, his true freedom. He never actually commits to anything in a definitive way or something larger than himself. Um, and so, I, I want to try to counteract, frankly, uh, that, that a culture that makes it so that children do grow up like that. They, it deforms mm. children. So, how do I do that? I pose, as you said, I, I, I pose um, unasked questions or questions that our age assumes have been answered or been made superfluous by science and technology technology or um or otherwise just aren't worth asking anymore when in fact they're still pertinent to a full and happy life and a truly free life and because i'm not i'm not a theologian i'm not a philosopher i'm just a journalist and a a storyteller i i work through those questions through the lives of of 12 great thinkers um some of them predictable ones like c.s lewis or john henry newman but some of them who are, you know, will surprise people in a book about tradition. You'll have the feminist Andrea Dorkin or um, uh, the, 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 the Jewish uh, 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 philosopher Hans Jonas, a modern philosopher of Gnosticism, who, less, some lesser known figures as well. I mean, some of them are these mm-hmm. kind of marquee names like Solzhenitsyn or St. Thomas or Augustine, but others are um, lesser known, but worth knowing. Is it, is it your worry that in a modern age, we have essentially forgotten that that wisdom of those thinkers. And obviously, not all of these thinkers that you're profiling are Christian by any stretch of the imagination. Um, 
But is I, I, I don't know. I mean, is it just that we don't read the old books anymore and, and it's whatever is the latest thing in our newsfeed is the thing that we think is is the, the wise opinion and we perhaps forget, yeah, the fact that there is hard-won wisdom down the ages before us. I mean, you're exactly right, Justin, and that, that, that's right. I mean, um, um, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery and it's the idea that um, because you've come in later in time, um, you must be right because you've superseded the past. Um, and you might, another word for it might be presentism. And it's something that um, I, I was very much um, guilty of, I think, in my late teens and early 20s myself, which is why I wrote this this particular book for a kind of young reader in some ways, although plenty of older readers have liked it too. But um, when I was an undergraduate student, you know, and I was a philosophy major, I, I always wondered, like, what? Why would you read Plato or an Aristotle? You did read them. Um, blessedly, in my age, you still had to sort of do go through the basics. But I was always wondered, like, well, this, these, this is, you know, these people thought their thoughts when we we didn't know about electromagnetism or evolution. So what what would Aristotle have to teach us today? Um, and so I think that's a real tendency of of especially a, a, an age that thinks about history as progressive and therefore if, if history is progressive, then the ideas of the past must have been debunked somehow just by mm -hmm. mere fact of them being older. Yeah. So it's yeah. a real concern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, freedom is, is a significant theme in the book. Uh, as you say, the, it framing the whole thing is the story of Maximilian Kolbe, um, patron saint of your son uh, and, and his act of, laying down his freedom because of his greater freedom if you like and um and we'll come on to some of those chapters that deal with the nature of freedom uh, a bit later on in the conversation but one of the ones you know that struck me the most is probably the one that I hadn't heard of the one the one example of a of a, a couple in this case that I hadn't heard of that you you talk about in the chapter that's called can you be spiritual without being religious and this is Vic and Edie Turner um and just tell us a little bit about this couple and why you use their particular story to answer this question about whether we can be spiritual without being religious. Sure. So if I may very briefly, since you mentioned freedom as this kind of unifying um, theme, um, as you said, there's this kind of very disparate cast of characters, Confucius, Andrew Dworkin, Seneca, Augustine, the Turners. Um, so what ties all of these figures together and we'll get to it with the Turners, is um, this idea that uh, that actually various traditional and natural limits um, make us free, that accepting them uh, are, is, uh, they are paradoxically liberatory. Mm -hmm. And conversely, the loss of those limits, which has happened kind of in an accelerated fashion over the past maybe two, three centuries, um, also paradoxically leaves us less free. And we only notice that when, when we've lost the limits that act, they did something for us that the, the unbound, to be unbound isn't necessarily to be free, that yeah. there's all sorts of anxiety and unhappiness bound up with that. And that if you have a sense of, um, ordered continuity, which is tradition, some steps that lead up behind you and then you kind of these steps that lead forward, then you can leap into the future in a free and kind of confident way. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of what ties all these otherwise very kind of disparate characters together. Um, so Vic and Edie Turner, speaking of, of ordered continuity, were a pair of British anthropologists, um, um, uh, uh, 
in, in the post-war era. Uh, they were kind of very much influential in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and really laid the foundations for, for, for the modern anthropology of religion. And they were, um, you know, they met because both of them were militantly secular. They were, you know, uh, fans of Marx, uh, um, eventually both card-carrying members of the uh, of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, and, uh, um, but they had a, a great interest in ritual and in, in trying to understand how ritual structures, uh, traditional or tribal societies, um, and what that might tell us about modern societies. So, I mean, the, uh, an obvious contrast that they would notice and we notice today is that in traditional societies, the passage from from childhood to adulthood or man boyhood to manhood is marked by these kind of distinct rituals. Um, whereas in, in the West, in the modern West, childhood just sort of imperceptibly bleeds into, into adulthood. And they wondered, okay, what, why do t- traditional tribal peoples do this? And so they ended up spending two and a half years in, um, in, in then what was then called Rhodesia, the British, British colony, um, uh, of Northern Rhodesia, um, in, in what's now Zambia. And they spent time with a, a tribe called the Nadembu as a small tribe. Um, and they noticed that, um, ritual does all sorts of things for, uh, the community that otherwise, um, they wouldn't be able to do that. It helps them in ways that uh, no other source of no other human activity quite does the same as, as religious rituals. So that, for example, um, in their, in a uh, selection of a chief, um, what the chief goes through is this ritual of humiliation before he actually becomes the chieftain. He's, he's insulted, he's mocked, and he's supposed to take it. And it's, it's part of the, um, part of the process of becoming the chieftain. And they notice that what that does is it reminds the newly uh, installed chief that his power is really um, only for the service of the people. He's not just gaining power for its own sake, but to help his community. Um, and and other sorts of the kind of, that there are various kinds of intractable conflicts between individuals or family members. And um, they are resolved through ritual because both submit to something larger than themselves and then um the interpersonal tensions bleed into not bleed but uh are accounted for and explained and resolved through this kind of larger account of what it means to be fully human or the ultimate existence of uh, of mankind and the the rituals that they noticed or that that they wrote about and they observed so moved them and so were so transformative in a sense that ultimately they became Catholics themselves when they re- returned to, when they returned to England, they, they converted to Catholicism, which they felt was the most kind of ritualistic expression of Christianity. Yeah. I, I was going to say though, that they came from a, you know, a pretty secular atheistic, frankly, sort of tradition when it came to the anthropology and sociology that they did. Um, but they obviously encountered something which went beyond for them simply some kind of evolutionary psychological explanation for why people undertake these rituals. Um, and, and you know, that is the way a lot of, you know, the modern world would dismiss it. They wouldn't say, you know, they, they would effectively say, well, we can explain this. It's, they've got their reasons, but, you know, we've moved on. We now understand why women have trouble conceiving and we know that rituals don't, you know, change these things. So what what was it that shifted their mindset in that sense to, to say, because they would understand that as well um, as modern people, 
but what was it that that made them realize no this is actually important doing things that express your humanity and faith and everything else in this kind of ritualistic way why why did they suddenly change their mind mind on that I mean, there's a particular ritual um, about which Vic ended up writing multiple kind of essays and entire books called the Shiamba ritual, which um, um, uh, is the penitential rite of the Ndembu people. And if you bear with me, I mean, I'll just summarize it very briefly. Mm. It was so striking to them that ultimately they concluded that um, it was a product of what you might call natural revelation that somehow... Um, divine revelation, which you get in scripture or what have you, is mirrored in the in the practices of uh, mirrored, however murkily, in the practices of um, of, a, of a of an unevangelized people like the Nedembu. And it was this, um, you know, whenever really serious disaster strikes a, a, an individual or a group of individuals in in Dembu society, they perform this rite in which mm, what they're kind of their major ancestral spirit, some kind of, you know, African God or Bush God enters the history of his people. And, um, is, is, um, he is in order to solve the problems of his people, he submits to their humiliation. They set up a kind of tabernacle where they, uh, kind of create a figure of him using sort of, uh, sort of mortar and, and sort of, uh, uh sheets and, piece of wood or whatever and all the villagers come up and strike at it and then they are told that they've killed the god but that they're innocent of it ultimately that he somehow redeemed them in in undergoing this and then they go under with him and they share a meal kind of a eucharist frankly to use the Mm. um which is where the beans are associated with this embodied god who has come down from 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 the upper realm of the gods and he's entered history to redeem his people through his own death and and so when they saw that, they, you know, obviously they had in, they they knew something about Christianity, mm-hmm. and they thought, well, this is very that there's something in the human spirit that longs for a self-sacrificing God that mm-hmm. um, and uh, that, that who resolves our tensions and redeems us through his own um, um, through his own under undergoing or going under, and it, so it, it just. It, I, I don't know if that's the only source of them ultimately deciding to become Christians, but it told them that that ritual is its own thing. That human beings mm-hmm. have this mm-hmm. kind of profound insight that is very hard to explain otherwise. But that uh, there is such a thing as as revelation, which you can then access and bring into your own life using ritual. Yes, and and it, and it feels like yeah, obviously it was significant for them in their own conversion, effectively to Catholicism. They felt that that was where they saw that that ritual most physically expressed if you like in in a local community um i i mean of course you know and coming back to the 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 question that the chapter is based on can you be spiritual without being religious i mean that that has been a mantra for many people modern people hasn't it well i'm spiritual but not religious because people don't approve anymore in in a sense of organized religion you know that's that's where all the the bad stuff happens and the control happens but i can be spiritual myself in my own private space i can i I can do my little you know yoga meditations i can you know have have sort of the 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 incense or whatever in my room to kind of give me that and and there's this sort of privatized kind of spirituality that i think a lot of people think well I'm, i'm getting the best of of what you know that old stuff used to give people 
I'm having the the spirituality minus the religion. What's what's the problem as far as you're concerned? And and how does this particular example sort of speak into that sort of current way of thinking? Sure. Yeah. So about um, actually 20 percent of Americans now identify as spiritual, but not religious. So it's a real uh, phenomenon. I don't know what the if they've if they've done polling in in Britain to see what the equivalent. It's uh, probably very similar. I imagine something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and uh, the problem with spiritual but not religious isn't um, the spiritual side. Uh, it's rather isn't the religious side. It's the spiritual side that it's um, um, they, they they such practitioners actually do have religiosity in the sense that they have some rituals. Um, they um, you know as you said they practice various kind of austerities on Fridays, you know, they, I, I only do spinning and then I only drink juice or whatever. Um, um, but what's lacking is uh, as, as spirituality, it, they, they don't tap into any kind of larger account of what it means to be fully human. That's publicly shared. And so, as you said, it's, it's privatized spirituality. So there's all sorts of benefits to um set aside the you know benefits in terms of your salvation of your eternal soul there's all sorts of temporal benefits in the here and now that people gain from religious communities but it it either has to have a group dimension and this sense of you're you're part of something larger than yourself and these kind of meanings that have been handed down the generations um, whereas if you're if you just think you know spirituality my spirituality is lighting candles and then i do cycling on my peloton and that makes me feel very kind of elated and then i sort of meditate for a few hour, half hour uh you don't um uh, if you fail to do it at most you'll say well i'm bummed out that i didn't get to do it but it doesn't have any of the kind of existential seriousness that that religion does and mm-hmm. therefore it doesn't fulfill all the other functions that religion does in in traditional societies and i wonder that some of the practices that we have for example on social media um provide the sort of substitute religious aspect so for example you know uh, not to get too political but there is a kind of tendency to to do a, a rituals of penance on twitter right if you've said yeah. the wrong thing if you've violated a kind of you know various um speech codes then you say you know i i have sinned my brothers and sisters through my fault through my fault and i'm going to work through it but <laughs> unfortunately there's no there's no redemption in, in the in in the twitter rituals in fact they're kind of uh, once yeah. you once you've run afoul of, of the rules mm. you're you're sort of banished forever and there's not this opportunity of of being yeah. um, you're excommunicated without any opportunity of yeah of returning to communion it's it's interesting, isn't it? You say that because I, I often think we live in a, in a sense, increasingly post-Christian West, but I don't think we're any less religious. We just find religion in other things very often. And it, and it may be in a particular political perspective or ideology or whatever. And that becomes sacrosanct. That becomes the the boundary. And you have your heretics and you have your priests and you have your holy texts and you have your, you know, the, the, the rituals, as you say, for those who transgress. And 
um it's it and that's something you you cover in in various ways in the book you're listening to the profile on premier christian radio with me justin briley in conversation today with author sorab amari on his recent book the unbroken thread discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos today's show is also available via our podcast do rate and review us if you're listening that way it helps others to discover the show and we'll be back with more shortly holier than thou radical delusional ignorant perfect it's time to challenge stereotypes about christians and premier christianity is leading the way transform your perceptions broaden your horizons open your mind to wide-ranging views read interviews with politicians theologians and tv presenters discover the breadth of the christian spectrum be provoked react inspired and informed Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello, welcome back to this week's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley, the show where you get to meet all sorts of interesting Christians in all walks of life and brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to request a free copy of the latest edition of the mag, do visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today's profile is a conversation between myself and Sorab Amari, who is a US journalist and social commentator and author of the recently published book The Unbroken Thread. And today's conversation was recorded for the UK launch of the book and we'll pick up the conversation as I ask him about the stories and characters profiled in the book. I mean let's move to another character that you profile, uh, Solzhenitsyn, um, in a chapter called What is Freedom For? Now this one I had heard of, um, but for those who maybe aren't very familiar, can you just give us a potted history of who Solzhenitsyn was and and the story that you open this chapter with where he's addressing, I think it's Harvard University at a very prestigious event. T- tell us about that. Sure. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a um, great Russian dissident um, under the Soviet Union, um, had initially supported the Soviet ideology, but then um, he had written these kind of mild jokes about Joseph Stalin in private letters while he was, while he was fighting in, in the second world war. And those letters finally made their way to the hands of the secret police. And so then he was condemned for a decade to the uh, nearly a decade to the gulag, uh, that network of camps, the Soviets ran for political prisoners. And um, when he, when he got out, then he began to to write about what he had experienced in the gulag. And these exposés, some written in novel form, some as historiography, most famously uh, the novel One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and then the Gulag Archipelago, which was kind of this vast history of the gulag system, ultimately made it, uh, you know, to the West, and they made it very hard for apologists of the Soviet Union, which, you know, as you know, it had a lot of defenders in among Western intellectuals, especially, it made it much harder for them to defend the regime. Um, and um, uh, you know, ultimately, I mean, in doing so, he he helped bring about the downfall of the Soviet Union with his literary activity. Um, he won the Nobel uh, Prize for literature for this work, and then in 1974, he was exiled and he came to the United States. Well, first he came to Europe, and then and then eventually he migrated to the United States. And 
1978, he was asked to give a commencement address for for graduates, for the graduating class of uh, Harvard University. For the most part, he had tried to avoid any kind of publicity, but in this case, because it was Harvard and and, uh, this kind of preeminent academic institution, he decided to um, agree. And as he wrote to his in his memoir, he he said that what was expected of me was the kind of typical immigrants owed to America. You know, oh, I've I've expe- ex- escaped tyranny and I've come to to the West and thank God for these my newfound freedoms. But in fact, um, you know, famously or or infamously, as it were, he um, he delivered a, a Jeremiah against the West, a, a critique mm-hmm. of the West. Um, and specifically, you know, what he, what he argued was that obviously he detested the Soviet regime and he did it, did, hated to, to the end of his reg- uh, days because it was this lawless tyranny. But he said what he suggested was that the West was also deformed in some way and it owed to the fact that, um, he, uh, that a kind of excess of rights and individualism had paradoxically robbed Western life of its true freedom and it had empowered, um, they had lowered the moral horizon of, of human beings to the level of, um, you know, I'm just a self-seeking individual. I will rationally maximize my own interest. That is the kind of uh, liberal ideology of the West. And, um, you know, he saw it in, in various ways. He saw it in how the Western media behave. He saw it in the kind of strange conformism of the Western Academy, but especially in the commercial practices of the West, which is where he was himself a kind of victim of, frankly, kind of predatory mm. behavior that mm. was legal. Mm. What infuriated mm. him was that it was all legal and that the law said, you know, as long as you kind of, uh, 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 get it in writing and, and, you know, you yeah. seek to do so well he, for yourself. You can go go for it. You know, yeah, it, it was. It feels almost as though he'd gone from one situation where where he there was no freedom. You know, in, in under the the Soviet sort of system, and the gulags, and so on, to to the opposite extreme, experiencing that in in the US, where freedom, in a sense, was so sacrosanct that that it almost uh, trumped your you know the the fact that we we should actually treat people in certain ways i mean you start the whole chapter actually and this book was written obviously um near the beginning really of of the pandemic um uh of of a particular instance where some entrepreneurs for want of a better word decided to try and buy up as much of the hand sanitizer and face masks and and that kind of thing in the u.s as possible so that they could make a a healthy profit by selling them at a, a very steep rate online and this, for you, epitomized for, to some extent the, the concerns that Solzhenitsyn had about where our freedoms may take us. I mean, what, what's what? How are you connecting those those two things together? Yeah, I mean, it's not even that he would say that the West um, was too free. Um, what Solzhenitsyn suggested was that, um, insofar as the modern Western account of freedom made no distinction between freedom to do what you ought to do and the license to do what you really not ought not to do from a kind of proper moral frame, then in fact, it, it, Westerners are also less free, but in a less, the, 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 the Western unfreedom, unlike the Soviet variety, which was a result of this kind of massive centralized brutal state, the Western um, unfreedom was more, diffuse and and privatized so that the tyranny that uh, westerners suffered 
was often at the hands of private actors. Um, that might mean large corporations, for example, exploiting workers or, um, you know, now today you have kind of the, the, the threat of big tech. And mm-hmm. um, if you take a strictly, quote unquote, libertarian view and you say, well, it's a private actor, it can do whatever it wants, then you you do away with all sorts of other moral goods that are important to a, to a society and help us really be free. Um, or it was um, the kind of private tyranny of the individual against himself in the sense that because the West was so quote unquote liberated, people were, <clears throat> are slaves to their own base appetites. And, uh, you know, whether that's addiction to pornography or addiction to drugs or, or other sorts of addictions that ultimately make you less free, but it's sold as under the, under the mantra of liberation. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's just to be very clear, I, he wouldn't say, I think that the West is too free. He would say that insofar as our account of freedom makes no distinction between freedom for good and freedom for evil. Um, in fact, we are also, uh, not as free as, as mm. human beings should or can be. Yeah. Which sort of takes you back to, to that, you know, Maximilian Kolbe in the, in the death camp, you know, and, and he was not free in the sense that he, he was a prisoner of the Nazis, but at the same time, he was arguably the most free person on the planet. In Europe. Because, yeah, exactly. Um, because of his, his willingness to simply give his life away in that, in that situation There's there's different kinds of freedom, aren't there ultimately that are, that are valuable. Um, uh, just before we go to the final chapter, I want to I want to draw out in our conversation. I just want to say, if anyone's watching and would like to ask a question, you're very welcome to pop one in the comments wherever you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube, and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll try and weave any of those in as they come in. But um, just just for those who have joined us and and are not sure exactly what we're talking about, let me remind you, it's the unbroken thread, discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos. I'm Justin Briley, and Saurabh Amari is uh, my guest for this special broadcast from pod of faith because today is the launch of this book in the uk uh so um uh, and i've just been admiring its beautiful cover um as well it's the the contents are just as good though and i really enjoyed reading it this week in preparation for for this interview Saurabh. um again freedom comes out uh in the chapter on andrea dworkin now tell us again uh who andrea dworkin is for those who aren't familiar with the name and it's in a chapter called Is Sex a Private Matter, where you delve into, you know, very modern issues around the availability of pornography online and everything else. Um, and Andrew Dworkin herself, you know, at, at the time she was active, was um, concerned about this even even back in the, the 1970s and so on. So, so tell us a little bit about this and, and how Andrea Dworkin plays into this whole issue. Sure. So um, Andrea Dworkin was um, a, a, one of the most ferociously radical feminists uh, in, in the American feminist tradition, um, active in the 60s, 70s and 80s and into the 90s. Um, and um, she was she was uh, known for her opposition, especially to pornography and prostitution um, and um which she felt that, um, you know, degraded women. Um, <coughs> and she had um, uh, ultimately, you know, in this tug of war between two different strands of feminism in the 1980s, uh, she represented what was called anti-pornography feminism, which 
who was less liberal in the sense that it, it, it was pre- it was prepared, for example, to to ban pornography if if it meant stopping the degradation of of of, of women on on screen and so forth. Um, but she lost that tug of war to a group that called itself sex positive feminists, um, who in a way emerged in direct opposition to Andrea Dworkin's tendency to Andrea Dworkin herself. And, um, you know, they suggested that, that, you know, porn or prostitution even can be liberating for women as long as they kind of take charge of it or what have you. Um, but she was a kind of very controversial figure, um, you know, famous for when she kind of just wearing overalls, kind of com- intellectually combative, but also a brilliant, brilliant um, writer and thinker. I, I obviously, um, I wouldn't agree with with Andrew Durkin. I'm I'm more of a traditional Catholic, but I think there are there are things that we can um, uh, you know that 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 should bring her tradition into coherence and alliance with um, a lot of traditional religious believers uh, if they can get past certain differences. And um, yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's a fascinating person to to sort of take up this issue of um, you know as I say the the question that heads up the chapter is, is sex a private matter? Um, because in a way um, it, it feels like this ties into the freedom thing, doesn't it? There, there's this sense that with the sixties and the sexual revolution, increasingly there was this sense that we're freer now. We can do what we want. We're not tied down by the Victorian attitudes of our forebears and so on. Um, but the sort of where has that taken us, I suppose, arguably, you could say it's taken us to Pornhub and to this sort of complete sexualization almost of of so many parts of culture. And without wanting to sound like prurient reactionaries, even many secular people who perhaps are, are in favor of, you know, generally speaking, freedom and freedom of the Internet and everything else. I think that it a lot of people are waking up to the fact that this is having serious psychological effects for a generation of young people who are now, you know, this has become normative, the, the, what they see online, uh, the way it's rewiring people's brains when they become addicted to pornography and that sort of thing. So it's it's kind of, for me, it, it, it all ties into that sort of whole thing of we think we're free, but often when we take those freedoms to their logical conclusion, we find ourselves less free than we were to start with. Yeah, you know the way I describe it is that we live in an age of um, when I say now, I mean I mean in 2021. Um, but the trend was there when Andrew Dorkin was active. She's she's passed away now. But um, that we live in an age of sexual schizophrenia. Um, in the one hand, uh, we're told that um, you know all sex is more or less nearly all sex is is good. It's it's private. Just have fun as long as you seek consent from your partner and um, you know practice the latest hygienic uh, guidelines to avoid disease, you know, do what you want. On the other hand, we live also in the age of, of me too, where we're beginning to notice, um, like you said, the, the effects of pornography, even if you're a, a secular, you, that it's, it's done something to the way that men and boys, um, young men and boys relate to women. Um, you know, the fact that uh, they encounter pornography now, um, according to one study that, you know, uh, nine out of 10 boys will have seen hardcore pornography before hitting puberty. That's a pretty mm. bizarre development in the moral mm. history of our species and kind of unprecedented legitimate. Mm. There, people say various things are unprecedented that are in fact precedented, <laughs> but this is legitimately unprecedented. Yeah. Or mm. we also are kind of aware of kind of various um, 
monstrous criminality that that uh, was that came about uh, as a result of the Me- came to light as a result of the Me Too movement. You know, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Epstein, uh, 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 sorry, Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. and others of the kind, um, where we're having this reckoning. And so it seems like. Uh, you know, the sex liberation of the 60s and 70s has brought us in some ways to a pretty dark place. And Andrew Dworkin uh, is is an important figure in that regard because she was in the thick of the sexual revolution and at the time was warning that this is not working out well for women and children, especially, that it's just empowering caddish men. Um, and um, I mean, the central argument I try to take away from her in the chapter is that um, sex is not a private matter, that uh, what people do in the bedroom ripples out to a, to a society. Um, so again, to go back to the Pornhub example, we have all sorts of pretensions in our society, in our public lives, to women's equality, to respect for the dignity of women, and which is great. But that's belied by the fact that 100 million people visit Pornhub daily. And they're kind of some of the most... Um, popular categories are some of the most viciously violent ones where women are slapped and so forth. Mm-hmm. So there, so Andrew Dworkin would say that, um, um, that our public pretensions are undermined by what we do when we set our browsers to incognito mode. And <clears throat> para, you know, strangely or ironically, I, I suggest that that that's an argument also that you can find in St. Augustine, who's one of the characters in the book. He has his own chapter, but Augustine also believed that um, somehow what happens in the bedroom, the the threat of a lust for domination, um, the libido dominandi of the bedroom, can ripple out to a wider society, meaning Roman society in his time. And um, uh, it, that what happens in this kind of smaller unit uh, shapes a whole culture or a civilization mm-hmm. so that sex for, for Augustine as much for Andrew Dorkin, for neither of them sex is kind of innocent of sex, political dynamics or totally uh, not contoured by kind of yeah. larger public inter- concerns. But, but wouldn't, wouldn't an Andrew Dorkin, you know, as, as a, a feminist of her time and many feminists today have said, Christianity is hardly the solution. Uh, indeed that has been subjugating women forever. And, you know, the, the the marriage sort of marriage has become a place for women, you know, where they are essentially put in their place and, and sex continues to be that in the vast majority of cases. So what's, where do you, where do you go, you know, to, to that, yeah. to that kind of critique of Andrea Dawkins as well? Yeah. I mean, she, she would say that we're, we're, and that's, you know, most of the chapters of this book, when I, uh, I'm, I, I almost entirely am uncritical toward the subject of the chapter. But with, with the Andrew Dorkin chapter, I think with a couple of others, but mainly for the Andrew Dorkin chapter is one where I part ways with the subject um, of the um, of the chapter in the sense that, um, you know, uh, Dworkin believed, as you just said, that all of the kind of natural law regulations that the church adopted, um, inherited from the Greco-Roman tradition and made part of its own moral system um, and everything else about how Christianity tried to alter or tried to reshape um, relations between men and women was just aimed at um, perpetuating male supremacism. Mm -hmm. And that just seems implausible, you know, like how do you explain in a pagan Roman context, a religion that comes around and says, no, not only should men not lust again after other women 
but men shouldn't even kind of lustfully approach their own wives because their wives are also uh, human beings imbued with the divine spark, carrying the image of the Almighty? Um, or how do you explain the kind of humanizing uh, uh, fact about kind of the, the Christianization of the Roman Empire, how it altered, again, the status of women? As you know, women were were um, some of the first to, to, to embrace Christianity in the Roman Empire precisely because um, it held up men and women as equally made in the image of God and therefore possessing a kind of complementary dignity. And conversely, I would say to an Andrew Dworkin, what has the removal of the barriers that Christianity um, imposed on, on, on human lust and human sexuality, what, what has that removal done? Has it actually brought us to an age of greater dignity for women mm. or has it rather empowered the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, the, the the Jeffrey Epstein's, and so forth, and I would venture that it's the latter. It's it's actually mm-hmm. just empowered. Um, the removal of those barriers has not uh, uh, freed women. Now, uh, Andrew Dworkin may agree that um, the removal of barriers hasn't made women freer, but she's not prepared to say maybe we should re-erect those barriers, and that's where I part mm-hmm. ways with her. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it feels to me like overall, it, it's again, it's one of those cases where something that has been treated in a sense as incredibly important and having this wide social significance, the sexual act, has sort of been removed from that. And now it's just a pleasure, you know, when it's made simply about consent and pleasure and and a kind of removed from any sense of faithfulness or lifelong commitment and so on it's yeah what happens in that process what happens when sexuality you know sex becomes commodified in that way rather in the way that you know religion have become become privatized you know as we were saying in in the last in its previous way it's it what what happens in a culture when you start to treat these kinds of things in in that kind of way Saurabh I think you just begin to treat people more and more like things um and you um in the same way that um, everything else is commoditized, this relationship also becomes commoditized. And so, you know, you have a phenomenon of, of only something like only where, um, you know, <laughs> any, any woman is potentially, you know, is, is, uh, is on camera and people, you know, various people around the world are, are sending your quote unquote tips. Um, and, it, you know, the question becomes it, it, for the fact the fact that that person has signed their name to a document giving consent, does that make it any less uh, degrading? What I find very Mm -hmm. frustrating is I just think, you know, when, when we talk about these things, like why was, why was the law of matrimony so important to not just Christian civilization, but all traditional civilizations? Why did it, why was it so important to direct the human sexual impulse to ultimately to uniting man and woman and to the nurturing of children? Um, you begin to sound like an alien, you know, to, in our, in our time, like you just sound like you're, you come from another planet. Whereas this was so taken for granted again, not just in, in Christian civilization, but Chinese civilization, every kind of pre-modern civilization kind of understood that it's important to regulate this force because it's a powerful force and it can, it can do tremendous violence to people if it isn't kind of channeled, regulated and, um, surrounded with various guardrails um yeah yeah it, it it another it's another fascinating chapter and and uh you know uh, in a way it along with all the other chapters you're taking all of these kinds of 
wisdom from the ages, but often expressed through quite modern characters like like Andrea Dworkin. And and you're you're saying here here's the danger. Here's here's what we lose if we forget what what was laid down by by our forebears and so on. Um, what? So your your son is now about I don't know three or four years old probably. Four, Max? sure, yeah. Four. What? When do you think you're going to give him this book and ask him to read it? What's what sort of what and what kind of reaction? Oh, that's such are you a good question. Of? No one. You know, I've been doing book launch events for this book and no one's asked that. And it's something that I wonder about. I think given what I what we just talked about, the Andrew Dorkin chapter, I mean, I think he has to be 16 at least yeah, to sure. be able to, because the, the, the Dorkin chapter is pretty, um, you know, yeah, pretty adult pretty in a way. Frank. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty frank. So I think I yeah. think 16 is the age I've come to. Mm-hmm. And And what are you hoping he'll take away? I mean, Inevitably, a lot of the work is done, you know, as the Jesuits say, give me the child and I'll give you the man. Um, a, a lot of the shaping is done before the age of 16 in a technological age we live in. What what kind of, given that, you know, he might not be able to read the book till he's 16, what, what are you hoping you can instill in him of these, these ancient traditions and this wisdom that, frankly, he's not going to get through his smartphone and his MTV or whatever? What are you practically trying to do, Saurabh, to, to pass that on to, to the next generation? You know, it's not through the book, um, to, to be honest. And, I mean, the book, like I said, it's going to be, and like you said, it'll be 16 by that time. Sure. By that time, oof, this scary thing to say. By that time, <laughs> it'll probably be too late. Um, so what matters is education. And Plato said, you know, education is just the, the work of teaching someone, a child to to love the right things, to admire the right things, mm-hmm. and to um, you know hate the wrong things, the things that, that deserve to be shunned. And so much of that is done not through um, rational discussions with children or through abstract um, declamations and so forth, but done through example and through communion between father and son or mother and, and son or, or mm-hmm. child. Um, and so, and that's a, that's a heavy, heavy responsibility for anyone who's a parent. And, um, you know, in a sense, in a sense, I, I'm saying, um, look, I hope that my book will shape my son's worldview. Yeah. But, <laughs> but how but, yeah. I live is a lot more important. Lot more absolutely. Important. Absolutely. It's, it, and it's a reminder for every, everyone doing the job of parenting. It's the, probably the most important job in the world for which you require absolutely no qualifications. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, we've got a comment in here. Uh, let's, let's include at least one before we start to wrap things up, Saurabh. Um, and it's, it's in regards to, to what we've just been talking about. This person asks, what advice do you have for parents who are navigating public education? How do we guide our kids to be grounded regardless of their surroundings? Because we can't wrap our kids in a, in a bubble. Um, they will inevitably be subject to whatever the latest morality is or fashion or whatever, especially in a sort of public space in public education and so on. How how do you uh, navigate that if you're wanting to instill different kinds of values? I mean, I argue um, to, to, to counteract the really bad stuff um, and, um, the, you know, as much as you can, I, I think we're now moving towards an age of, of teaching children about um, not only kind of like subcultural sexualities and so forth, but even just sexuality in general to ever younger ages. 
I don't know why the kind of reigning ideology has such an obsession with transmitting this stuff in a way that just was unspeakable earlier um, to earlier ages. So to try to get block that stuff out. But on the other hand, um, you know, I got fatherhood advice from a friend of mine who, by the way, you know, he, he's, he's Jewish. He's not a Christian. He, he's more secular than I am. But he gave me great advice, and that's, um, I think it's, it's what you said, Justin, which is to not bubble wrap. It is important for them, to, because if you bubble wrap and, you know, these children who've just gone through private Christian academies only encountered uh, views with which their parents agree, the minute they encounter kind of the secular, mm. yeah. <laughs> they, will call, they will say, ah, see, this is what my parents were hiding from me. I'm gonna, mm. Now I'm going to embrace it full on. Yeah. Um, so um, to, to, to have conversations, um, that's what I plan to do. I mean, I'm, my kids were into Legoland and, 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 and uh, uh, Paw Patrol. So right now it's too early. But when they get to the age where we can have really serious conversations to have, to have conversations, to have them read what, quote unquote, the other side says about things and then talk through them in a, um, in a yeah. you know, somewhat didactic, but also open and reasonable way. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, you know, on a broader scale, the next generation, a lot of what we've been talking about sounds a little bit like, oh, dear, it's all going going to hell in yeah. a handbasket. And, you know, in a sense, you know, arguably a bit pessimistic. Um, do you have hope? Do you have optimism for, for the future? And do you see any signs that the what you're trying to do in the book, um, yeah. the you know, not forgetting our, our roots and the ancient wisdom? that it is being embraced anywhere that, that people are kind of moving against the, you know, simply read the latest Instagram post and, and you'll be fine kind of ideology. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm called to have theological hope. So in the, in the longest t- term, God's in control and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> but in the immediate future, um, I, no, even in the immediate future, I have sources of optimism and it's precisely um, young Christians. When I say young Christians, it makes me sound like I'm a, I'm seven years old, and I'm like, ah, you're the the young ones, but but younger than me, you know. And I'm 36, but young Christians in their early 20s who are who recognize that some things have gone wrong, and um, and they are uh, preparing, but only how they kind of live their own lives to live them more uh, purposefully uh, and um, and thoughtfully. How do they? shape their own families and communities, but with an eye toward how to be reshape the public square. And mm. um, yeah, they give me a lot of hope. So yeah, no, no, well, I'm, I'm not at all. Like, it, it feels like we're living in a kind of science fiction dystopia sometimes. Um, but uh, it's, I, I think there's a happy ending to that good. dystopian movie. <laughs> I'm sure there is. <laughs> um, and like you, you know, we, we are even though it sometimes looks like things things are going badly we we do have that ultimate hope um the the unbroken thread is the book we've been talking about have a read of it i really enjoyed it and what i like about the book Sorab, is in a sense it will open up people to a whole other range of thinkers writers and books so once i finished the book i thought now i have about five to 10 other books that I want to go and read on the back of reading this one. And and I know that you're a fan of always um, reading the old books as well as the new books. So, um, but I do encourage you to at least pick up this new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. Uh, all the very best as you continue to talk about the book um, over in the USA as well, Saurabh. And thank you very much for joining me this evening. 
Thank you, Justin. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley, in which we've been airing the conversation I had with author Sorab Amari, first broadcast for the UK launch of his recent book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. If you're listening via podcast, do check out the book details with today's show. You can find that at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile do rate and review us if you're listening to the podcast it helps others discover the show otherwise we'll be back next week with another great interview see you then